Well, it's great being back here again. We always love it uh, and, and love the, the new look. Uh, I mean, this is uh, beautiful colors and uh, really turned out nice. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a little disappointed that I didn't get to participate. I got to participate in the first laying of the carpet. <laughs> and this one I didn't get to participate in. So, um, they left the part we did on the stairs. The stairs. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, Chris and I had to work that out. And he taught me how to do the stairs. And, uh, and so I did some of that. And that's the, about the full extent of my carpeting experience. So if you'd open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we're going to spend some time there this morning. Uh, I'm going to read verses 11 through 16, and then we'll kind of start from there. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, whom, to, uh, the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So one of the things I think that we dread more than anything else is the idea of being exposed. Uh, it is still a very common dream uh, among people that, you know, you show up somewhere in public and realize you don't have any clothes on. Uh, it's still a very common thing for us to, to be very uh, frightened of the idea of an expose. If, you know, someone were to find out what we're going, what's going on in our lives, that we would be embarrassed in some way. Um, it is a scary thing. To, to have the secrets of our heart laid bare. Uh, I once heard a, a video presentation that uh, Tony Campolo, who is an older speaker, <clears throat> he once said, you know, if you knew what was going on in my mind, you wouldn't listen to me. But he said, that's okay, because if I knew what was going on in your mind, I wouldn't speak to you. And we are that way. It is a scary thing. We all kind of have these things in our heart uh, that sometimes can make us realize that we're not maybe as good of people as we like to think we are. This passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning is, in my mind, an extremely important one. Because it is about how we view the Bible. And for many Christians, at least many evangelical or more conservative Christians... We view the Bible as the inspired word of God, and we should view it that way. But what I want to talk about today is viewing the word of God as living and active, thinking about it in those terms. This in many ways is, I kind of think of this as sort of a half-baked sermon, because 
I'm still thinking about what does it really mean for the Word of God to be living and active. So I want to talk about three things this morning. Number one, our biggest problem. Number two, what it means that the Bible is living and active. And number three, why that is good news. So, number one, our biggest problem. Now let me take a moment and explain the context of the verses that I just read. Um, this portion of Hebrews 4 is a reflection or a meditation on Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is a reflection on the story of the Exodus and the first generation of Israelites who leave Egypt and are going to the promised land. Now, if you remember the story, the people of Israel were enslaved in the land of Egypt and Moses led them out. That first generation traveled through the wilderness, but because of their, uh, their sin and their disobedience, and in particular, uh, their, their worshiping of the golden calf, they were not allowed to enter the promised land because when they got to the edge of the land, they were convinced that the, the people of the land were going to kill them and they didn't trust God to win the victory for them. And so God said, you're going to go back into the wilderness and you're going to wander for 40 years until this generation passes away. And then your children, the next generation, will enter the promised land. So Psalm 95 is a meditation that says, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like that first generation did. And in uh, Hebrews 3.19, now, now reflecting on Psalm 95, it says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So here's what I want you to see is that the writer of Hebrews is saying that Psalm 95 teaches that that first generation didn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief. They didn't trust God enough to win the victory for them. So if you can kind of imagine a, let's imagine a scenario where we are a group of people who live on one side of a large canyon and we have business on the other side of the large canyon. So the only way that we can get there is sort of to travel around the edge of it, walking several miles. And one day somebody builds a bridge over the canyon. And they say, look, this is a great bridge. You, you no longer have to walk around. And we say, hey, that's great. We, we believe you. We believe this is a great bridge. And then we walk around the canyon to get to the other side. So they say, well, okay, maybe you didn't understand. You know, they kind of walk through the process. And then we keep saying, we believe that this is a solid bridge. But we keep walking around. And eventually... The builder of the bridge would say, I don't think you really believe that this is a solid bridge. Because if you really believe it, you would walk across it. And that's what's going on in this passage of scripture. 
The writer of Hebrews says, look, even when the people of so the people were promised that they were going to be led to a land where they would experience rest. They had been slaves. They were going to enter a land where they would experience rest. And the writer of Hebrews says, even when Joshua led them into the land, they didn't really experience rest. And, and so the writer of Hebrews is saying that rest is still available. And it's only found, that rest is only found in Jesus. Because when the people, the first generation, didn't enter the land because of their unbelief. The, the next generations entered the land but never experienced the true rest from their works because of unbelief. And so what I want to say to you is the greatest problem that we will ever face in this life is unbelief. Not trusting God. Now you might say, well, hey, listen, I know that non-Christians have that problem because they don't believe God for salvation. But I'm a Christian and I, I believe God for my salvation, so now I trust God. But the question is not, have you trusted God to save you? The question is, do you trust God to govern your life? And I don't know about you, but I find the default setting of my heart is one of unbelief. Because it is easy, having, having trust, now remember, Hebrews is written to, to Christian people. It's written probably to Jewish Christians who are starting to experience persecution and are being tempted to go back to their old religion, to their old way of relating to God, to relating to God through the law of Moses. Forget about Jesus. Let's go back to the law of Moses because then we won't experience this persecution. And so the question is not, have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? It is, do you trust Jesus to guide you through this difficult time? And that's, I think, the struggle that we have. So we come then to our, the first verse of our text which is a, such a fascinating statement in verse 11. It says, let us strive to enter that rest. I think the NIV says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now that's an interesting statement because we generally don't think of striving or being diligent being associated with rest. You tend to think of it as I go to work and I strive or I work hard or I'm diligent and then I come home and I stop doing that and I rest. But the writer of Hebrews says we've got to be diligent to enter this rest that has been promised to us. Why is that? Because the default setting of our hearts is one of unbelief. And as you live the Christian life you will always be tempted 
to do it yourself. God, I've trusted you for salvation. And I, Lord, I'm believing that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But to make it through this day, I'm going to have to do this myself. I'm going to have to make sure this happens. I'm going to have to be in control of life. And so trusting in God to save you and to govern your life is our hardest battle. Because all disobedience, and this is the point I think that Hebrews 4 is making, all disobedience comes out of distrust. All disobedience comes out of unbelief towards God. Not saying that you stop believing in God, but just like that bridge, you're saying, I believe that bridge is great, but I don't believe it enough to walk out on it. So the greatest battle we will ever face, our biggest problem is one of unbelief. Now that's, that's sort of point one and kind of keep that in a, in a parentheses because we're going to come back to that. How, how is this addressed in this passage of scripture? Number two, what does it mean that the Bible is living and active? These are the main verses that I want to look at. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What, what's going on here? The vision between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this is a picture. Well, let me, let me say, over the course of, I started thinking about it the other day, but um, Beth and I celebrated 30 years of marriage this year. And... Basically, I, I went into ministry, full-time ministry, about a year after we were married. So I'm, I'm starting to come up on 30 years of being in, in some kind of ministry. That, in and of itself, is, well, during that time, I would say, I have probably cited this text well over 100 times. Because, as you, most of you would know, one of the big themes of my life is the importance of Scripture. And um, citing it, I always, in my mind, was quoting it in a very positive way. The Bible is living and active. Oh, that's great news because when you read it and you take it into your heart, it lives inside of you and it creates life and it begins to change who you are. And there's a dynamic of, of the Word of God inside of us that makes us alive in this world. And what I've realized in looking at this carefully is, the Bible does teach that. I think it teaches it more in some other places. But that's not the point here. The Bible is living and active. What, but what does the writer of Hebrews mean here by these words? If we, follow, if we follow the thought of the passage, it goes something like this. Since the people of God in the Old Testament never entered the rest that was promised to them. Even when they entered the land, they didn't enter the rest because they still had to work. Uh, not like planting, but they had to work in their sacrifices, in obeying the law. They're still doing these works. They never entered God's rest. Why? Because they didn't trust God fully. So, that rest is still available 
and we should strive to enter that rest. Now, verses 12 and 13 are the why. Why should we strive to enter that rest? Because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes to the core of who you are. The Word of God sees everything about you. All the little things that we like to keep hidden and we, we keep to ourselves and nobody really knows about us, the Bible cuts to the core of those things. It exposes us as a sinner in the presence of God. Now, here's what's important about this. This is critically important. We're not talking about non-Christian people. Hebrews wasn't written to non-Christian people. It's written to Christian people. So the writer is saying, as Christians, we have to strive to enter God's rest. That is to trust God to save us and to sanctify us and to outfit us to live in this world. We have to always be thinking about trusting God. Why? Because the scripture is always searching us. And it's unearthing those things that we sometimes look at and we think, oh, nobody really cares about that. And, and you know, those moments when you read a scripture and you suddenly realize, oh, God does care about that. You know, I don't know about you, but I've had the experience a lot of times in reading the scripture and thinking to myself, who put that verse in there? Because I've read this a lot of times and I've never seen that. And you just read through it. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit says, you know, this is for you in this moment. You see something just sort of highlighted in your mind and you suddenly realize, and I think this is the point. You begin to see, I am not living according to what this says. And it's that moment of conviction that is so important. Now, the Bible in that sense is living and active. We should strive to trust God to save us because nothing is hidden from the word of God and nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. And we will have to give an account for all of it. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you may be thinking to yourself, this is exactly why I hate Christianity. You people are always talking about God judging us. And, you know, the idea, I mean, I, I'm, I do totally understand that idea. You know, you're always talking about being sinners and you're always talking about God judging and you're always talking about God catching us doing things. As though God is sitting in heaven keeping an eye on you and waiting for you to mess up. I grew up in that kind of a context. We used to sing a song when I was a kid that went, there's an all-seeing eye 
watching you. When you're a little kid, that's a little intimidating, you know, just feeling like, I've got to be careful. And that was the intention. It was intended to be, you need to be careful about how you live because God sees everything. So what I want to do is talk about why is this good news? Why would it be good news that God sees everything and judges everything? Why would that be good news? So imagine this. Um, you go to the doctor. You're not feeling well. Doctor number one says, look, um, what do you say we just cut you open and see what's in there? You know, I'm willing to do the surgery. We'll just cut you open and see what's going on and see if we can figure out what's And you say, wouldn't it be like a good idea to maybe do an x-ray or some kind of a scan? And the doctor goes, oh, bless your heart. I, I just love you so much. I just want to get in there and see what's going on. And you say, well, no, wait a minute. You know, I want some kind of way to look inside of me and see what's happening before you start this surgery. Doc says, no, don't worry. It's, everything's going to be great. I, just, I love you so much. That I care about you. Just trust me. I'm going to cut you open, and we're going to figure out what's going on. Say, no, thank you. The second doctor you go to says, okay, we're going to do an x-ray. We're going to do a CAT scan. And once those are done, we look at it, and we will know exactly what's going on. We'll be able to see exactly what the problem is, and we'll know exactly what to do. And you say, okay, so then you're going to do the surgery. He says, no, I, I got a golf game to go to. I, I mean, I, look, I just don't have time to do this kind of stuff. Uh, you, you'll just have to figure that out on your own. I mean, I'll know exactly what's wrong with you, but then you're on your own. If you're going to have a successful surgery, you need the ability to find out exactly what's going on and somebody who cares enough about you to fix it. Doesn't this, doesn't this meet our deepest need for love? And isn't this the kind of love that you've always wanted? Somebody who would look into the very core of your heart, see every little thing that is wrong with you and still love you? If you're, if you're not a Christian, isn't, isn't that what you're really hoping for in life? You know, there's the uh, classic novel, Crime and Punishment. Um, a lot of people have never read it. But it is a, it's a fairly amazing story. It takes place in Russia. The central character is a man named Raskolnikov. And he is, Raskolnikov is good looking, very intelligent, but very poor. And because he is very poor and he, he feels like he should be one of the kind of people, because he's so smart, it's so good looking, he ought to be one of those kind of people who ought to be able to get away with everything. In other words, he thinks to himself, there are some people who are above morality. And so, 
he commits murder. He murders two people. And he gets away with it. Nobody knows who commits the murder. But he is completely undone. He literally just sort of falls apart. His personality disintegrates. And for several days, he's almost in a comatose state. And he's constantly becomes super paranoid. He's convinced that any moment everyone's going to figure out what's going on. He just, his whole life just begins to unravel. Which tells you something, I think, about the nature of sin, doesn't it? It dehumanizes us. It destroys us. It, it tears apart who we are. If you've ever watched, I mean, it's, it's always fascinating to see... Um, especially the arguments of people who maybe are addicted to drugs or something like that. And they, they say, I, I, I should have the freedom to do whatever I want. And then you look at their life and they're completely enslaved. That's the nature of sin. It promises freedom and it gives slavery. So Raskolnikov is completely destroyed by this reality of what he's done. But the only way his life begins to come back together is when one person knows what he did and loves him anyway. You see, it is good news that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God and that the word of God is living and active because it means that God knows us completely and loves us Anyway, how do you know that you're loved? Well, you, you know that you're seen from this passage of Scripture, that the Word of God searches you. So how do you know you're loved? Well, here I think is how this works. <clears throat> we will either, as human beings, justify ourselves or trust in God to justify us. Uh, you just I would encourage you to like maybe over the course of the next 24 hours in conversations with people when you go to work or wherever you go on Monday. Um, as you talk to people, watch how often people justify themselves. How often they boast. How often they uh, defend themselves. It wasn't my fault. It was so, you know. Uh, sure, I ran into that guy's car, but it wasn't my fault. That bird flew right in front of my car. I, you know, it's, it's totally that bird's fault. You know, we justify ourselves. We make these rational arguments to explain why we were not at fault. When uh, Adam and Eve fall into sin, it's a fascinating case study. Uh, because God comes to Adam, and Adam's first sentence is, the woman that you gave me gave me the fruit. In other words, God, out of all the people here, I'm the only one who's not at fault. That's how we think. That's how we live. We will either justify ourselves or we will trust God to justify us. Think about um, the story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee comes into the presence of God and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
you know, I tithe and I, I do all these things that I'm supposed to do. Thank you that I'm not like this jerk over here who's such a terrible person. And the tax collector comes into the presence of God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man walked away justified. God declared him righteous. We will either declare ourselves to be righteous or God will declare us to be righteous, but we can't have both. You see, when we look at this passage, and this is the last few verses, we see our high priest, Jesus. The last little bit of the scripture here, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is like us, tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we look at our high priest, Not just a high priest who made a sacrifice for us, but a high priest who became the sacrifice for us. We become confident to enter the throne room of God that we might find grace. Here's what my concern is. In preaching this, this is sort of a part of a. Uh, I'm going to be doing some teaching in some of our schools um, on on the nature of Scripture. And so, one of the things that concerns me in the church today, I, I have big concerns about the more, if I can say, more liberal, more progressive sides of, of Christianity that are abandoning the Word of God as authoritative or as inspired, and treating the Bible as though it were just any other book. I think, that's, I think that's a problem. My greater concern is for the more conservative side of the Christian faith. That we would always come to the Bible to affirm our own doctrine without letting it affect our hearts. That we would always listen to a sermon at, at the end only say, I agree or I disagree without ever saying I'm different. Having heard the word of God explained this morning, I'm different. We can be so we can have such a high view of scripture that we can miss the point of scripture entirely. Uh, one of the privileges of, of doing the kind of work that Beth and I do is we get to have associations with all sorts of different people in various capacities of missions. Uh, and so I have a few people that I know and I've talked to who have as sort of their focus of missions ministry uh, working with Muslims. And so when these guys will talk to some of the imams, um, they will say things like, well, we memorize our book. Do you have your book memorized? We have such a high view of our book, the book, the Quran, that we commit it to memory. Are you guys doing that? And so that made me think, okay, how should I answer that? And I realized the answer is, no, we don't memorize our book 
Because the command to us is not to memorize, but to internalize. And until the Word of God carries authority in our hearts, we will always come to Scripture like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have life, but the Scriptures point to me and you refuse to come to me. And we can easily fall into that trap where we only treat our Bibles as though this is where I come to get the answers to know the right way to do things without ever actually bringing my heart into the presence of God and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Friends, the gospel is that we are more sinful than we ever imagined. But we are more loved than we ever dreamed possible. And the word of God comes into our hearts and says, do you see these places? Do you see the righteousness that I'm calling you to and the places where you're not meeting that righteousness? And it doesn't do that so that we would say, okay, I'll try harder. It does that so that we would say, Jesus, my great high priest, I find out having been a Christian for more than 40 years, I need you even more. Not just to save my soul. Lord, I need to know how to live. In other words, that every point of conviction, when the scripture convicts us, it would be that we would turn to Jesus and say, I need you more. I need more grace. And the confidence to do that would be from the fact that Jesus has paid the full price. You see, I think as the longer you become a Christian, the less legalistic you should be. I don't mean the more permissive you should be. I mean you would take a hard stand against sin in your own life, but every sin you find would not push you to try harder, but would push you to Jesus. Say, Lord, I teach you more. I mean, I thought I was doing pretty good in this area. Lord, I thought I was doing pretty good. I was, I've been tithing, and I thought that was it. But Lord, what I find is you're calling me to a, have a generous spirit. And Lord, I, I, I give because I feel like it's my duty to give. I want to give because I love you so much. Lord, I need you more. Lord, I, I've been faithful to, to my wife for all these years. I, ha I haven't had an affair. I haven't done all these sorts of things. I haven't abandoned. I haven't divorced. I haven't done all that stuff. But Lord, I see that your command is that I would love my wife as Christ loved the church. Lord, how am I ever going to love my wife like you love us? I need more grace. I need your power. I need Jesus more in my life. That our whole lives as Christians would be one of encountering the word of God and running to Jesus more and more. I mean we would be less legalistic in the sense that we would have less interest in trying to save ourselves and more interest in the one who is our high priest who has saved us. So my encouragement is let the word of God 
more fully into your heart. Don't be content with having good doctrine. You should have good doctrine. I don't come here, you know, I mean, yeah, Mark was, Mark's grown a lot, but, you know, there was never a point where I thought, oh, I think Mark is, you know, doesn't have good doctrine. I know you guys are getting good doctrine, but let it in. Let it all the way in. Let it search every part of your heart. Let it search every part of your life. And when it does, throw yourself towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will give you the grace to live differently in this world. Let's pray. So, Lord, I I, I just pray that um, today, even as Psalm 95 says, and it repeats in Hebrews, Lord, today, as we hear your voice, we would not harden our hearts. But instead, we would let the word of God search us to the very core of our being. And then, Lord, we would once again look to our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might find grace in our time of need. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.